Latino Stories, Historias Latinas, es un podcast que nace del proyecto de narrativas orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio, con entrevistas en español, inglés, and Spanglish. Welcome to Latino Stories. I'm Elena Fowles. My guest today is Dr. Susana Ramirez. La doctora Ramirez is a social scientist whose program of research aims to advance the science of communication to advance population health, motivated by a concern for social justice. Professor Ramirez is a nationally recognized expert on media, inequality, and dietary health in Latino culture. Her research has been published in top interdisciplinary journals and has been featured in regional and national news, including National Public Radio, ABC News, Univision, and the Huffington Post. Bienvenida a este episodio, Doctora Ramirez. It's my pleasure to be here. Susana, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Did you grow up in California? No, I, um, I was born in Mexico, uh -huh. and I lived in Mexico until I was six. And then when I was six, we moved. Um, I have a kind of non-traditional story, although I guess if you talk to a lot of immigrants, mm -hmm. we have, there are a lot of non-traditional immigration stories. Right. Um, but we, we moved to um, Texas. Mm -hmm. to, uh, my father was pursuing a, a doctorate. And so we moved to Texas and um, lived there for three years, and then we moved to Arizona. So I consider Arizona sort of the place where I grew up. Mm. And then I moved to California for uh, college. And just stay there. And <laughs> I kind of stayed there. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, um, so I, I got to California, and I loved, I fell in love with the Bay Area, mm -hmm. and I took on a consulting job after college. And then after a few years, I realized I really wanted to do more with my life. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I wanted to go to um, graduate school to do something to learn about how we can use communication to change the world, basically. Um, and so I had a really fantastic mentor in college who heard what I wanted to do and said, there's literally one person in the world that you need to work with. And she was an amazing mentor, and she helped me get connected with the person who ended up being my mentor at the University of Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. So I went to graduate school um, in Philadelphia, and that was that was pretty pivotal um, in that it, in terms of shaping my career trajectory. Mm. Because while I while I knew I wanted to do communication and social change, um, I didn't. You know, it's it's interesting. I had grown up, obviously, I'm Mexican, and I grew up going back to my abuelita's house and spending time with my cousins mm -hmm. in Guadalajara, in this you know big city in Mexico, living um, suburban life in Arizona. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't really have to think about. You know, there were there were two parts of my identity. I was Mexican in the summertime, and then I was yeah. American yeah. Um, in Arizona and later in California, and I, I didn't. It wasn't so unusual, right? Arizona at the time that I was growing up was had a lot of Latinos, even mm -hmm. if not so much in the city where I was growing up. There were still a lot of Latinos in the state, and it's on the border, so mm -hmm. that influence is there. And then in California, it was already one in three people were Latinos. So I wasn't, I, I was not bizarre, or I didn't, I didn't have a sense for standing out and, and identifying um, mm -hmm. as Mexican until I went to Philadelphia, and I went to Philadelphia and. The 
when I went to graduate school, the cultural landscape and um, ethnic mixture of people mm-hmm. was completely um, different than California. Mm-hmm. It was just a completely different world. Um, and it was very much shaped by the black and white dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started getting really interested. Well, I first felt like a fish out of water. I had no idea what was going on. I couldn't figure out why I felt so uncomfortable. And mm-hmm. it was because there was no third space, right? There was no, like, I, there was, I, I started asking about Latinos, where are all the Latinos? And, mm-hmm. you know, folks said, well, you know, over here in this one part of Northeast Philadelphia, we have some Dominicans and Puerto Ricans. Mm-hmm. Um, but they just had no conception of other kinds of um, Latinos. And so it was, it, it, that sort of social unmooring led me to ask questions about the things that I was reading and the, the as I was getting more into the literature on health disparities yeah. and on uh, communication inequality. And uh, again, what, what I was seeing in the literature was very much reflecting this black and white dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there were very few people who were answering the questions that spoke to my experience. Um, so, so I went to, so, we can talk more about that. I think you have some more questions right, along right. those lines. Mm-hmm. But, um, but anyway, so I, I finished my PhD and then I did something really weird, which is after my PhD, I actually decided that what I, when I said I wanted to change the world, what I meant was I wanted to improve public health. And mm-hmm. so throughout my doctoral training, I hadn't actually trained in public health. And so I went back and I moved to Boston and I got a master of public health. And then after that, I went and to, to Washington, D.C. and did a, um, a postdoctoral training at the National Cancer Institute focusing on cancer prevention. Wow, so your journey I, has been, <laughs> has been, been yeah, yeah so not it, only regionally diverse, but also, you know, in terms of your your focus uh, a little bit. But I mean, it's interesting to me to hear how you came, you know, how you decided to to do public health communication. So, yeah, sorry. Uh, tell, tell us more about that. Yeah. So I had, you know, I majored in communication as a as a college student. Mm -hmm. And I went to college thinking I wanted to be, this is really going to date me. (laughs) Um, But I grew up in the 80s and I watched um, the Who's the Boss, which Uh is this ridiculous program featuring a a single white woman, working woman who was the head of an advertising agency. Mm -hmm. And um, she, when I was growing up, seemed very glamorous and very successful. And there weren't a lot in the 80s, if you think back, there weren't a ton of, you know, female figures that were really inspiring in terms of career-driven women. And so I just thought she was amazing. And I wanted to be her. I wanted to be an advertising executive when I grew up. And I didn't want to major in college in in marketing or advertising because those were very dry in in my experience. Um, And so I thought, oh, communication kind of sounds like advertising and marketing, except there's all this other really rich stuff, which I now realize is sort of the the, um, sociology and anthropology Mm -hmm. um, and psychology kind of all blending together. So, um, so I majored in communication and, you know, and then I went after college and I did strategic communication consulting for multinational organizations. And so by, by the time that I decided that I wanted to go to graduate school, I knew I was pretty good at understanding communication. And I had started reading the economist magazine 
uh, because I was traveling so much internationally. It was kind of what we what we had access to and what we read as mm-hmm. consultants. And so in the back of The Economist are the most fabulous job descriptions <laughs> for someone who's in their 20s. And, you know, they're just, they're, they're fantastic um, job descriptions that, that talked a lot about change management, which is what I was doing, um, but in the context of improving conditions for people around the world. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, oh, this is fantastic. I can take my strategic communication work and sort of change the world. And a lot of what they were doing was actually health-related. So they were using communication to improve public health outcomes. Um, and I just didn't know, I didn't have the right words around that. But, um, but that's what I got really, really excited about. And that's what motivated me to go into um, doing a PhD. So I, I originally went to the PhD thing. There's no way. I'm not going to be a professor. I'm just getting this because I need it in order to get these jobs in the back of the Economist magazine. And I wanted to go work for the World Health Organization or other NGOs um, and do sort of development communication campaigns and things like that. But um, but I got to, to the PhD and it turns out I really loved I love being a professor. I, I love the idea. I love the, the life that the professor has where you have the opportunity to engage in really deep intellectual work and you get to share that with people who are just getting interested in that field mm-hmm. and you're helping them to learn how to do research and how to think about issues and being surrounded by students, I think, is a really good way to always stay young in your brain. I agree. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, so, so that's, um, so as I, you know, sort of became, developed my research interest in a particular area, I realized this is the kind of thing that, um, you know, that, that I need to learn more about health. And so I need to learn more um, about public health and need to uh, take some, get some formal training in that so I can better apply it in the research context. But then at the same time, I was realizing, hey, I really enjoy working with undergrads. And when I got to be a TA, I, I enjoyed that process. Mm-hmm. That's great. Susanna, most people perhaps um, don't think about the importance of communication information for specific populations, unless you are part of that population. I've had conversations with different people about you know, sort of their marketing materials or or the way that they're um, presenting a news story and or information, right? And we we've seen this a lot um, lately with um, our experience with the pandemic. In your research, you demonstrate that simply translating information into languages is not enough. Talk to us about your research and effective communication with the Latino community. Yes. Um, so this question is actually really central in motivating my entire um, body of work. It was really speaking to, there are a lot of people like you and me, like we, we are bilingual mm-hmm. or we live in either fully bilingual and, you know, Spanish kind of world, or we tend to live, you know, primarily English speaking world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for me growing up, I spoke English nine months of the year and three months of the year I spoke Spanish because I was in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't, it didn't really mingle. Um, and, and, I, and so as I became interested and I started asking questions, where are Latinos in the research in health promotion specifically, mm-hmm. people would sort of shrug and say, well, we don't, we don't really know. Or they would point me to interventions that had been done to translate mm. 
messages that had been uh, developed for English-speaking populations, and they they had gotten a translator and uh, literally translated it. And I thought, well, this is, you know, that's fine if you're trying to talk to me when I'm in Mexico, but a lot of people in the United States don't speak, a lot of Latinos don't necessarily speak Spanish, or they may speak Spanish, but the context in which they use that Spanish are not the context in which they may be looking for this kind of information that you're trying to give to them. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to miss them altogether. So there's that sort of foundational, you know, what language do people choose to speak in the different contexts in which they live their lives? And are you ensuring that you are um, reaching them and targeting them effectively? And then it's the, okay, what does it mean to actually target th- these groups effectively? What do those messages need to look like in order to be effective for these different populations? And that was really a set of questions that folks had not really done. I mean, I think it's, I think it's great that Long ago, people realized if you have folks who don't speak English, we need to make the, the whatever it is uh, accessible to them in the, the language that they do speak. And so you need to engage with translators. But really good translation isn't word for word, literal translation. Right. And you know that better than I do. It's, it's an interpretive process, right? And so wh- what kind of interpretation needs to go into sensitive information. Prim- my, my work is primarily around prevention. And um, mm. so, so, you know, the context where you really need to make sure that people, you've got to hook them, you've got to like, make them interested in, and, um, and they may not be sick already, right? So you're trying to prevent mm. um, illness. And, um, and so how, what are the kinds of things that different cultural groups care about that are going to engage them and get them to pay attention to this message? Um, What do those messages look like? So these are all the kinds of questions that I've really struggled with in my research. Right. Um, What have you noticed now? And, you know, we're still uh, in the middle of the pandemic, you know, with, uh, with, uh, um, some hope, I guess, uh, but we're still pretty much, and it's 2021 and we're still in it. What have you seen as effective or perhaps even ineffective communication during the pandemic for our community? I think the communications issues during the pandemic have been, I think the the issues with respect to communication on Latinos or, or targeting Latino audiences during the pandemic um, have really failed uh, in terms of the practical application, um, and at least initially. And, and then now we're finally at the point where we need to think about also the content. What I mean by that is initially, uh, if we can think back to 18 months ago and 12 months ago, when we were communicating about testing, um, there was a lot of, I want to be careful with when I use the term misinformation, but there, there wasn't a lot of clear, actionable information mm. that was disseminated to any, any groups at all. Um, and so it was, okay, when do you need to get tested? Who needs to get tested? Right. Who is eligible for, mm-hmm. for testing? But it, a lot of that wasn't a failure. In, in my opinion, it wasn't a failure so much of communication as of the processes that were required were unclear, right? Mm-hmm. So 
it failed as a, it was a communication failure, but only insofar as it as it reflected the, the actual state of we have no idea what's going on, and we're trying we being the the folks in charge, the mm-hmm. policymakers, and the administrators in each community are still trying to set up how it is that we're going to do this testing. And so it's not that the communication was poor, it was just that it was reflecting the processes that were mm-hmm. poor. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing when we went to launch vaccines, questions about who's eligible and right. where can you get this and which vaccine, all of these were, again, there were communication issues, but they were the result of we're trying to, you know, I'm going to mix my metaphors, but we're trying to sail the boat while we're building it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it wasn't, I think we place a lot of blame on communication. And I, I, I'm the first person to say communication is absolutely critically important. I see the world through a communication lens. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really easy to say problems fail issues fail because of communication, but it it actually isn't the communication's fault. Communication can't fix everything, right? Right. If you don't have a testing site in the place where particular populations live and it's open when they're available to go get tested, you can't communicate, fix that through, you know what I mean? Like you can't fix that through communication. Um, You have to actually build a testing site and have it open at the time that people are open. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think initially what I saw was a lot of people wanting to blame uh, communication failures as the problem. And I I don't think that that was really the case. Um, And I think sort of analogous to that is what I think is going on or has gone on more recently, which is folks are are um, not getting vaccinated or not wearing masks. You know, if we go one one level deeper, then okay, let's assume we fixed all of the sort of structural um, and administrative logistics, and then it really is a communication challenge. I think part of the the problem um, in effectively communicating with Latinos is now that we have uh, created distrust. Right. Mm-hmm. So when we failed initially at organizing ourselves very quickly and nimbly and providing um, access to, you know, most Latinos are considered vulnerable populations. They live in low income communities. They may be low income. They um, are clustered in um, highly vulnerable jobs. So mm-hmm. they have suffered. You know, we've all seen the statistics that Latinos have been and Latinas in particular have been the worst impacted, the most um, laid off uh, during this pandemic. And so, so we, when we have those failures and, and then we have all of this messaging now um, that by, by potentially well-intentioned people who are saying, look, it's all the people who didn't get vaccinated who are, are to blame now, you know, but, Folks may not have gotten vaccinated because they couldn't, because they there weren't places for them to be, and now they're getting blamed. Mm-hmm. Um, or they're, you know, the the constant um, changing of the message, right. which is some it's tri- it's tricky to say that that's a problem because on some level that's how science works. It's constantly correcting itself, mm-hmm. right? And so we just need to be really careful about how we convey that message, but there's certainly um, a diminished sense of trust among um, Latino populations for 
certain um, news channels mm-hmm. or um, and and communicators in their communities, mm-hmm. uh, whether you know depending on on who it is that they're trying to reach. And then also, what I noticed too is that a lot of Latinos um, and maybe other populations too um, consume their news via social media, and social media. <laughs> I mean, just like, you know, we have to be careful with the news we consume, period. Uh, but social media ten- can can really give some dangerous information or incorrect, certainly incorrect information that then gets, um, you know, reshared and, and taken as, um, as legit. Um, and so if you have a group like Latinos that is consuming news via those uh, channels, then it's it can be very confusing. Or who do you trust? Or who do, you know? What is the story that we need to wh- that we need to follow? Right. Um, so I don't know if you um, have any comments on that in in regards to Latinos and social media. I think you are exactly right. Um, Latinos we know are higher than the typical American consumer of social media. Mm-hmm. They're more likely to trust information about health that they get from the news and from social media. Mm-hmm. So not only are they accessing it more, uh, but they also have greater trust in it. And then another component of it is that Latinos are um, connected to a much larger social web than, um, than monolingual or non-immigrant origin populations. Mm-hmm. So they're connected through social media and through, you know, their phones and um, with, with family members who are maybe in Mexico um, or all over the country. And, and they're also checking news sources that are not necessarily U.S.-based news sources, um, which doesn't make them worse, but it makes them different because they have the, you know, the context for um, vaccination or mask mandates or whatever is different in right. Mexico. And so the news is reflecting that, right? And so you have groups that are using social media more. They trust um, inform- health-related information from the media more, and they have a bigger pool of news and social media that they can draw from because they're often connected to multiple countries. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the the universe of potential misinformation is much greater. Right. Um, So I I think you're you're absolutely right that the role of social media with the Latino population is particularly um, concerning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, In your research, uh, Susana, you have also focused on the idea of fatalism, often prevalent in immigrant Latinos and perhaps, um, you know, uh, generations of Latinos, um, non-immigrant Latinos here in the, in the U.S. and African-Americans. Um, and, and it just reminded me of when you started, you know, to understand sort of the role of communication um, in Pennsylvania or like living there, that experience that you saw the, sort of the black and white binary um, and not inclusive or not thinking about other groups and how they uh, maybe uh, understand certain uh, behaviors, um, especially as it relates to health. Uh, But I'm interested in this idea of fatalism. Um, 
uh, for or within the Latino community, but also the African-American community. Um, tell me about this research. What have you found? Um, are there any differences between the two groups or are, are, are they do they follow a similar sort of view or behavior because of this? Yes, great. So uh, I'm, I'm, I think I have three different categories of fatalism. Okay. Um, and the reason the reason that I got interested in fatalism is because if you read the literature in um, health promotion or health disparities, there's almost always this throwaway line in the you know, background section of studies that say, well, you know, because Latinos are more fatalistic or because African-Americans are fatalistic or immigrant populations are fatalistic, blah, 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 right? They're, so they, they tend to get blamed for or their, the low rates of engaging in preventive behaviors, um, getting cancer screening, for example, mm-hmm. they tend to be blamed on this idea that people are fatalistic. And fatalism in that context is sort of defined as, well, it, uh, there's nothing I can do about it mm-hmm. because it's God's will um, or because, you know, there's just, if I, if I get cancer, I'm just going to die anyway. I don't want to know about it. <laughs> there's nothing I can do. So why should I bother to go get screened or engage in preventive behavior? Mm-hmm. And it, it really, this, I, I call it a throwaway sentence because it's, if you actually look at the back, at what the research that throwaway line is based on, it's, it's, it's not great. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that these three groups have in common, Latinos, African-Americans, and immigrant populations, are they are structurally vulnerable, they tend to be lower income, and they have high rates of uninsurance and mm-hmm. lack of access to health care, right? Mm-hmm. And so these are vulnerable populations, and typically the work in fatalism uses this idea of a psychological construct that applies to this ethnic group um, to really what I think of as effectively blaming these groups for not doing what we, the public mm-hmm. health community, want them to do. So I, I don't think that's right. I think that's, that's not, you know, entirely true. So there's one critique of fatalism that says, look, what you, you know, dominant researchers are calling fatalism is actually an accurate reflection of my environment, right? Mm. If I'm looking and I'm a smart person and I'm looking around and I'm saying, there's no cancer hospital near me. Mm. I don't have health insurance and I can't afford treatment. So if I get cancer, I'm going to die. Mm. That's, mm-hmm. that's not being, that's not having a bad attitude. That's not being fatalistic. Right. That's literally me saying, I know what it takes to get cured from cancer in this mm-hmm. country and I don't have it. So I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. So sure. Why, why bother getting that test? Mm-hmm. That's going to tell me, um, how do we fix that? We don't fix that by telling people to have a better attitude. We fix it by getting access to health insurance and health care and clinics in communities. Um, so another, so that's a, that's a structural critique. Another critique that I've made of fatalism is that looking, fatalism may not be a, a bad attitude about the behavior itself, but rather 
um, kind of throwing up your hands as a result of getting so much information about something that you're just overloaded. You're confused um, and there's conflicting information. There may be, it may be true information, but it's conflicting because of all the caveats that might apply to it. And so the result is this information environment that's conflicting and it's just overwhelming. And the average person just does not want to wade into the details of the scientific stuff. And so, you know, rather than I'm paralyzed, I'm paralyzed by the information basically is what happens. And so it's not, again, a bad attitude that you're fatalistic is mm-hmm. I just don't know. I literally don't know what to do because there's conflicting information and too much information. Yeah, I can definitely, sorry, I'm sorry. I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was going to say, um, I'm very interested in what, in your critique of structural, structural inequalities that exist and, and that we don't give credit to this communities as, uh, really <laughs> realizing that, right. Realizing like, listen, um, I know what my odds are. I live in this neighborhood. I don't have insurance or I don't have access to X, Y, and Z. I know what my outcome is. Um, and, I, and I don't think that, at least, at least um, you don't hear that as, um, as often, right? As, as uh, communities understanding their own situation or their own, you know, um, health outcomes by understanding, you know, what they have and don't have around them, um, which is very empowering, right? That, that gives agency to to the people of, in terms of understanding their environment, um, not necessarily agency to take care or to, you know, to, to um, maybe better the conditions uh, because, again, these are structural inequalities that we're talking about. Uh, but certainly uh, it's not something that is easier, I guess, to blame, um, you know, their lack of participation in preventative medicine, et cetera, as something that is cultural, right, or a behavior that, yeah. oh, they just don't do that, right? Um, so so I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I really... Um, like to think more on that, you know, in that way, and, and that gives people agency and full, they fully understand what's going on in their, you know, in their own communities and their neighborhoods and their families, and, and they know what they need. I think I agree with you completely. And I think that this is why it's really important that we diversify the research workforce, because you know, for years, this idea of fatalism had been, it's really, I don't, I don't mean to make light of it when I call it bad attitude, but that's effectively what it is, right? It's, you're saying, we just need to change these people's attitudes mm-hmm. um, as, as a way to fix this. And, you know, until you have people who are from these communities and from these ethnic groups really engaged in framing the research questions, and looking at, here's what I know, right? Like it took me knowing that there's this whole group of Latinos who speaks English and does not live in a Spanish language media world. Where are the messages that are targeted to me? It took me being a communication researcher to start asking those questions and to get those questions, you know, into the the body of literature. Um, 
but until we can incorporate those, you know, the ground truths that people bring, um, we're not really valuing those um, levels of knowledge and that kind of knowledge that people bring. Right. And, and that um, I had a conversation a few months ago with uh, with a with a doctor, a medical doctor, and we were talking about uh, vaccine, you know, um, access access to vaccine for our our community. Um, and you know, and, and and so the narrative, and this is probably where you 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 come in to 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 the play, right? The message that was that was being. Uh, shared, I guess, is that there was hesitancy, right, uh, with the Latino community. And then sometimes, yeah, there might be a little bit of hesitancy. But what we're really talking about is disparities, because, you know, you are not offering vaccines in places where the community is, or you have, you know, we had incidents, um, I think, initially at the beginning of the year, where People that um, didn't le- live in s- certain neighborhoods were showing up for the vaccines, right? Um, and um, they tended to be um, non, you know, non um, uh, Latino people that would show up to neighborhoods that were Latino, and essentially like taking up the vaccines that were that were reserved for for certain communities. So it was it's more than and I don't know um, if is you know if we can we can uh, compare it or, or or think of it think of it in the, in a similar way. But I do think that some of those were right thinking again blaming the community for not getting vaccinated with words such such as like hesitancy. Uh, when the reality is that it's an issue of disparity or equality, right, and and, and access um, can be dangerous, right, for for our community and how we um, uh, how we actually uh, serve, you know, certain communities. I think I think you're exactly right, um, and this idea uh, that the way that the narrative. The, the dominant media narrative at the beginning of the vaccination efforts was certain communities are hesitant. Mm-hmm. African Americans are really hesitant. They have low vaccination rates. Latinos, mm-hmm. we, we are really hesitant. Look at our low vaccination rates. When, um, in fact, that wasn't really, that wasn't what was going on. There were, first of all, Latinos in particular are younger than the um, non-Latino population in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so when the first round of vaccines were released, you had to be over 65. Right. And our population of over 65 is much lower. So we were not going to get, you know, um, equivalent rates right. um, just because of the, the demographic um, distribution. Um, the decision to make that vaccine available to only over 65 initially, that was a decision that had equity impact. Why did we, I'm not making a claim that it was right or wrong, but that decision um, really reflected uh, the prioritization of the older, wealthier, whiter, um, Mm -hmm. you know, groups. And so, so we're down already, right. In terms of Latinos. Um, And then it was access issues, Mm -hmm. like the, like you mentioned, that they weren't available in um, Latino population, Latino um, neighborhoods, yeah. mm-hmm. or Latino neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, another another issue that you know got wrapped up into this hesitancy 
was if you think about the kind of jobs that Latinos hold, mm-hmm. they aren't they aren't flexible jobs, right? right? I mean, you and I can take an hour of our day relatively easily to go down and get the vaccine. Mm-hmm. I when it was it was a madhouse when vaccines were were um, available in my community and I stood in line for three hours and I could afford to do that because I could keep, I could work on my phone. Right. I could do my phone calls while I was in line. No problem. But if you work at a meat processing plant mm-hmm. and you have to time in and time out, um, you know, and you're there for a particular shift, that's the kind of job that Latinos tend to have. That is not a flexible job. So if you aren't, you know, providing opportunities for people outside of standard working hours, which was what was happening at the mm-hmm. beginning. They were saying, hey, we're open from nine to five. And there's, you know, there aren't pe- people are not breaking down our doors to get the vaccine. Right. You know, shocker. Right. <laughs> yes. um, and then and then, you know, the, and the other thing that we have to acknowledge is there are side effects and, you know, somebody can be completely on board theoretically and they might even be able to make time to go get the vaccine. But if you are like I was out for 36 hours, I was I was mm-hmm. completely exhausted as a, and I'm happy to have had the vaccine. I would do it again. But it, that was I had side effects. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you are unsure about the effect, you know, the side effects on you or you know that you just can't afford to take a day and a half off of work, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's a calculus that we, we just can't really judge. So, again, the, the solution isn't to, to do more persuasive communication to this group. The solution is, okay, I understand that you're concerned about losing two days worth of work. How about if we compensate you for those two missed days of work, mm-hmm. right? That's a, that's a structural solution. It has nothing to do with designing effective messages. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, but when we frame the conversation as we initially did about hesitancy, it really puts the onus on the individuals mm-hmm. and not the structures in which they're living. And so in that way, yes, absolutely. This It's the same. It's analogous to this idea of uh, fatalism mm-hmm. right. and, and the way that that was framed initially. Right, right. Uh, Susana, uh, we've been talking about health communications and and, and, and how that relates to um, maybe miscommunication can also lead to health disparities for communities that are already vulnerable. What are some things that we can do to make sure that, you know, communication gets distributed effectively and is actually useful for our Latino community. And I really do appreciate you talking about, um, you know, translation is one way. Um, obviously, when you translate is you have to th- you have to make sure that that's that the message is coming a- across in a culturally relevant way. But also thinking about Latinos that might not be, you know, um, might not consume the news or the information um, in Spanish uh, primarily, right? So how to deliver uh, these messages effectively um, to make sure that our communities are being, you know, are not being uh, affected negatively uh, when it comes to health communications? Yeah, so I think to, to answer the question about how we distribute or what are some lessons about distributing effective mm-hmm. and useful communication to the Latino community, I have to say that 
I want to make sure it's clear, although I keep saying the Latino community, mm-hmm. you and I both recognize there is not one Latino community. Right. Um, and so when we think about communicating, um, especially I do a lot of work in the context of nutrition. And when you think about nutrition and food consumption mm-hmm. and food choices, mm-hmm. those are really culturally specific. They're country specific and they're even regionally specific. Right. Um, so I think the first Uh, comment I want to make is just to make sure that we all recognize that um, whatever it is that you're communicating about, you need to understand how that fits into the particular Latino community that you are working with. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, that's first and foremost is recognizing that this term Latino really encompasses an enormous amount of diversity. Mm -hmm. Um, and And that affects the kind of context in which these particular, you know, that particular community that you're trying to communicate with um, lives at kind of the, the um, kind of cultural understandings of the world that they have. So I think if you are trying to communicate with a particular community and you don't have a close relationship with that community, you should do whatever it takes to fix that. Mm-hmm. So it this isn't something that needs to happen just in the time of crisis. It's something that it's a relationship that has to be built and maintained over time. Mm -hmm. So you have, um, you know, you can establish trust. So that's a long-term project that I would say. And then um, once you have that, or as you're building that, um, you know, that consultation with that community. So you understand, you know, I'm a researcher. And so I always think in terms of what kind of research can you do with that community to make sure that the way you're even phrasing questions is appropriate for that community. What kind of feedback can they give you about how you're, um, you know, framing a problem or an issue. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's really critical. Um, Thinking about the, the specific idea that you're trying to communicate what it is about, um, how does that fit into the key values that the population holds? Mm -hmm. Um, So one of the things that we're looking at in my area is we know that Latino families are very close-knit and we know that um, Latinos really value children. Um, and, and there are things that parents would do for their children that they wouldn't do for themselves. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that we're going to try is to develop messages, um, really looking at using the idea of taking care of their child by taking care of themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so as, as an example of something that we know, um, we, well, we think based on what we know about the values held by this particular community, um, might be motivating. Right, right. And I'm thinking about some of the health um, conditions that some of our um, popu- Latino population sort of uh, has. Maybe I'm giving you uh, ideas that you that are, are not new to you. <laughs> but I'm thinking about like, you know, how people um, uh, in our community, uh, there's a tendency for um, diabetes, like there's a higher rate for diabetes. And thinking about um, how taking care of themselves also, you know, um, is a way to make sure that they're there for their children, right, as they as they're getting older. Um, But yeah, no, that reminded reminded me of that, because you're right, like, um, our parents or our older Latinos or parents um, think about their 
children um, and their well-being before thinking about their own. And um, and that the, there is right because we're modeling. There's a correlation between us taking care of ourselves um, to model behaviors for our children, uh, and so that contributes to the well-being of all. Right. Yeah. That mo- the modeling effect is one way in which taking care of yourself is taking care of your child. Um, and then another, I mean, really to be fairly crass is if you don't take care of yourself and you're not there anymore, who is going to take care of your child? Right. Um, so really practically speaking as well. Right. Right. Uh, Susanna, is there anything else you would like to say about your current research or future projects uh, or initiatives? Well, we didn't even have the chance to, um, I mean, (laughs) we could talk a lot. We didn't, we didn't even have the chance um, to really talk about how it is that you think about the um, way, how we incorporate, incorporate values Mm -hmm. into messages that are in Spanish or in English. Um, And so that, that one of the projects that I'm working on right now that I'm really excited about is taking key values and um, using people from the target community to design messages for people like them, Mm -hmm. incorporating these core values. Um, And because they're from U.S. Latinos, they're in English um, with some, you know, key words in Spanish as a cue that this is, this is for Latinos. Mm so that's kind of work that I'm really excited about. We're going to see results of that study soon. And gosh, this was so fun to, to talk. <laughs> Great. I'm glad. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I look you. forward to, to maybe recording something uh, about that. Um, you know, how do you integrate or, uh, core values into the messaging um, when you're, you know, of the population you're trying to target? That, that sounds very, very interesting to me, too. Thank you so much. Susana, gracias por esta conversación. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. A todos, gracias por escucharnos y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima. Sí.